Last week, the title of my message was The God of the Law. And I wanted to stress and emphasize that God reveals His good character through the law. And that the more you know the Lord, the more you are inclined to love Him. And so as we look at the commands of God today, these are given by our Redeemer, our Savior. And we as Christians especially know His love because we've seen it poured out in the precious blood of Christ. So as I preach this message today, I mostly want to speak to those who are already trusting Christ for the forgiveness of sins, that you would already say, Jesus is my Savior. But if you're not sure that Jesus is your Savior, let me begin this message by saying, you need to know Him. The law helps us understand what Jesus did for us. The law helps us understand what it means to obey God. But the law also stands as the standard of our conduct that will one day cause those apart from Christ to be condemned. And so as I preach this message, I want to make sure that we all appreciate the incredible love of God and above all, look to Christ for salvation and learn to be made more and more like Him. The God who gives the law is our Redeemer. And He not only saves us from our sins, He teaches us to walk in obedience Titus 2, 11-14 describes that. That our salvation is not just forgiveness, but it's training in righteousness. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so I've entitled this message to love the Lord your God. And it's my prayer that as we go through the first four of the Ten Commandments, that we would see this is how we love God. 1 John chapter 5 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And I think that as we think of the Ten Commandments, especially for those who maybe don't know the Lord well, who don't understand how loving God is, it's easy to think of them as some sort of harsh father laying down his house rules, full of threats for breaking them. But that idea about God is very wrong. Our God is a loving Father, and His commandments bless us. And my prayer is to show today how we can love God in response through obedience to the first four commandments. So let me just give you the first four commandments, and then in my outline this morning, I've actually turned them into positive commandments that describe how they love the Lord. So, the first one, have no other gods before me. Number two, do not make images for worship. Number three, do not take God's name in vain. Number four, honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Exodus with me. We are in Exodus chapter 20. And the page numbers are up on the screen this week. So page 61 in the blue Bibles. The red Bibles are large print, and you can find it on page 72. And I think that if you think of these four commandments, first in human terms, how they would relate to a husband and a wife, it may become clearer how they relate to loving God and why Jesus says the first commandment 
is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let me give you a single sentence for each of the commandments in a husband-wife relationship, and then I'll talk about each of them in more details. So first, speaking to a husband, husband, only one wife. Number two, love your wife as she actually is, not what you thought she was or what you want her to be. Do not make her in your own image. Number three, do not drag her name through the mud by your actions. And number four, spend time with her. Love her. And now, if you reverse it and put those commands in the negative and think of a husband and a wife, think for a moment of a man who is unfaithful to his wife, who sleeps with multiple women, who tells his wife, how to dress and how to act, and who is a constant embarrassment to her name because of his conduct, and who never spends time with her. We would recognize that as a deeply dysfunctional and sick human relationship. But I think we often fail to realize how we break the commands of God and behave like that man in a dysfunctional human relationship. And we believe that because we're saved by grace, our disobedience is unimportant. But it's not unimportant. It's a failure to love our Savior Redeemer. And so, this morning, my prayer is that we would learn to love the Lord better. And so my first point for today is, number one, love God alone. And look with me at verse 3 today. After God has said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He is our Redeemer. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. As a husband should love his wife and be faithful to her, so we should love God alone. We must not cheat on God by chasing after idols. There are no other gods. And think about this for a second. We believe that God created all things and that His creation is good, which means... That when we worship an idol, we are worshiping a good thing that God created. The problem very often is not in the object of our worship. It's in the priority that we give it when we love a good thing in the place of God. I believe that very often we we understand that idolatry is wrong. No one is actually encouraging us to go worship other things in obvious ways. Most of us would never bow down to a wooden or a metal image and offer it a little drink or a little food. And certainly no one would be making animal sacrifices in an attempt to earn God's favor or a false God for for sure. So we might think that we're safe from breaking this commandment. But the reality is the New Testament is full of warnings to people who worship Jesus that we also need to flee from idolatry. The very last verse in 1 John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul describes temptations posed by food and sex both as idols. He says to Christians, flee idolatry. And in Colossians, he says very clearly that covetousness, covetousness, simply wanting something that is not yours, covetousness, is idolatry. The reality is, 
the things that steal our love away from God are often very subtle and often very small. And they often take the form of very good things. But they distract us from God and they take our hearts away from Him. When Jesus described things that keep people from the kingdom of God, He said things like having a field that you had to plant and sow. Things like having a wife that you need to be dedicated to. Those are both good things. Those are both gifts of God. But ultimately, if they keep you from Jesus Christ, they show that they are idols in themselves. And so I have a few things that I just want to mention. And and it's so easy to be judgmental. And so I just want to be careful as I list some things that may pose idols and be the first to admit that I have my own idols that I am tempted to worship. And so as I list some of these, maybe they're idols for you, maybe they're not. But I want to encourage you to recognize that the command to love the Lord your God and have no other gods before Him is for you and I and all of us are tempted at times to break it. And so first, let me mention one that I think is a problem for most people in some way or another. Food can absolutely be an idol. I was talking to Chris this week, and he mentioned to me one of the best ways that he has understood idolatry is the thing that you cannot get enough of. Whatever you crave in a way that you cannot be satisfied with. The thing that's incredible about God is that although He is infinite, He is deeply satisfying. That's why Jesus says, when you experience living water, you will never thirst again. Because when you find your rest and and your worship in God, although you can never encompass all of Him, it is deeply satisfying. But that is not true of our idols. And so it might be one more plate of food. It might be one more episode of your favorite show. For me, you may have noticed, I, I, in the past 18 months, have put on about 30 pounds. Um... That's not a joke. I I actually, for the first time, stepped on a scale. Um, 30 less might be a little too thin, but 30 in 18 months is definitely not good. That's not okay. Sometimes I am tempted to steal comfort in food instead of eating it with an attitude of thankful worship. And if I'm truly thankful, I will not be greedy. So that's an open confession that sometimes that is an idol for me. I think Facebook is an idol for a lot of people. Not because we're bowing down to the little blue F, but because we crave being noticed and liked by people. We measure our value in the number of likes we get. And you will never, ever, ever reach the bottom of your news feed. So you can scroll and scroll and scroll. How many of you who enjoy looking at pictures of your grandkids and cute kitties, how many of you have scrolled and scrolled and scrolled and all of a sudden realized that lunchtime was an hour ago? It is easy to do. And I believe that that feeds our need to be accepted and loved. And that should find itself satisfied not in our human relationships, but in our relationship with the Lord. Being a news junkie can be an idol. And I've talked about that in the past. There's nothing wrong with being informed. But you can inform yourself in a way that you feed your ego so that you are the first person to know things, so that you understand them better. The difference between enjoying a good thing and worshiping an idol is where your heart is at. So for some, being a news junkie may be an idol. Work can be an idol and so can rest. 
Workaholics believe that their own strength provides for their needs and they worship their ability to work. And lazy people worship comfort. Family can be an idol. Some people may disagree, but I believe the Scriptures are very clear. Jesus said, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. That is Luke chapter 14, verse 24. I want to give you chapter and verse because I did not make that up. That may be the least popular verse in the entire Bible, and Jesus Christ said it. His point is, family is is a good gift. But his point is, if your family does not want you to follow Jesus, that you are to follow Him anyway. There comes a time when you forsake family for the sake of Christ. And yes, Jesus wants you and I to honor our father and mother. That's one of the Ten Commandments. He wants us, especially the the parents of a family, to provide for their children. He says a man that doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. But a man or a woman who does not obey Jesus because of family is breaking the first commandment to have no other gods before Him. The greatest commandment is not love your family with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is love God first. The thing that makes God incredible is that we cannot get enough of Him and yet He is deeply satisfying. And when you enjoy His presence, you no longer want to worship anything else but all of the good gifts of God They're not forgotten and forsaken, but they're put in their proper place. They actually become vehicles of worship. And I'll say a lot more about that in Sunday school today as we celebrate the goodness of God's creation and we turn enjoyment into praise. The command to have no other gods before the Lord is not a command to forsake the good, rich gifts that God has. It's a command to make sure that you never worship the creation instead of the Creator. If you, in the past few minutes, have realized that you are not seeking God for Himself, but instead that you're chasing after one of His gifts, let me encourage you, believer, unbeliever, to repent today. And I want to give us all a little time at the end of this message to do that, but I want to say it right now. The battle against idolatry is not fought in the future with never-kept New Year's resolutions. I say this, it's so easy, especially as we go over to, to my in-law's house and they have cookies and they have wonderful things and I think, I will, I will do better with food tomorrow. It's so easy to say that and to really mean it every time you say it. The battle with idolatry is fought in the present, today, now, with the Word of God and with prayer. And so I want to urge you to never be complacent. If you know that you struggle with an idol, you need to to pray with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and see if there is any wicked way in me. And if you realize that you are failing in some way, stop and confess what you've done. Do not say, I'll watch the rest of this show, I'll watch the rest of this series or season, and tomorrow I'll be better. Do not put off repentance. Do not live in the diet starts tomorrow mentality. Smash your idols today and love God alone. Secondly this morning, love God as He is. Love God as He is. Notice verses 4-6 through with me. God says, 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This command is very similar to the command to have no other gods before him. And yet it actually describes something far more subtle. And so when I talked about a husband-wife relationship, I briefly mentioned you know, the jerk husband who tells his wife how to dress and how to act. He may tell her to diet and exercise. And we all understand that it's very wrong for a husband to try and make his wife into something that she is not. But I believe that we do this with God all the time. The second commandment is not a command against false gods. It's a command against making images and likenesses of the one true God. In a few weeks, we'll look at how Israel sinned when they made the golden calf. That's part of Exodus. As they journey from slavery to worship, they receive the law of God. They're impatient. And so before Moses comes down the mountain and describes how to worship, they have Aaron fashion them a golden calf. And now here's the thing I want all of us to realize and recognize. They are not under the mistaken impression that God is a divine cow. None of them think that. But cows symbolize wealth and food. They had seen God provide for them. They had seen God give them good gifts. And so what they were saying is, they wanted to just use this image of God as a reminder that God gives good things so that they could move their hearts to thankfulness as they worship. And in response to their idea of how to worship God, God nearly wiped out the entire nation. He is deadly serious that we must never make images of Him. God is eternal and infinite. You cannot make an image of Him that is accurate. And if you try, you will create a false idol, even if you think that you're worshiping God. If you make a fearful image of Him, that reminds you of His powerful strength, you may neglect His tender mercy. And if you make a loving image of Him, you will neglect His awesome holiness. And I want to say a a, a brief word about pictures of of Jesus. Because I think this, this applies to the way that we make images of Christ as well. Everyone loves pictures of the shepherd Jesus. The idea that that Jesus goes after lost sheep. And it's a biblical idea, and it's true. We love the tender shepherd who goes after lost lambs. But how many of us also have pictures of Jesus from Revelation coming in might and power to judge the world? Revelation describes Jesus with His eyes as blazing fire and a sword coming out of His mouth. And let me remind you that that description from Revelation chapter 1 describes Jesus as He assesses the church. Not unbelievers. The church. And so Christians need to understand that that is a representation of who Jesus is that is biblical. I have never seen that hanging in a church lobby. Ever. Why? I think in part because we want shepherd Jesus and we want to minimize the Jesus who in power assesses us and our churches. And I think if, if we 
only want to worship shepherd Jesus, then we're not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. We are making Him in our own image. And I believe that this applies to our mental ideas about who God is too. Have you ever come across a verse or a story in the Bible and you didn't like what it said about God? The phrase, that's not the God I believe in, must never be uttered as we read the Scriptures. The Scriptures tell us who God is. We do not have the position or authority to question God. Our idea about who God is must be informed by His Word or we are making a mental image of Him according to our own likeness. And recognize the only way to have a faithful understanding of who God is is to humbly meet Him consistently in His Word and in prayer and in fellowship with other believers in humility seeking to be taught by the Holy Spirit as we read and pray. I would urge you, and I urge myself as well, recognize that we should grow in knowing Him better and better over time. And as you grow, you will realize more of His greatness. And the old images that you used to make will be shown as cheap and wrong, and you will find a better, a richer, and a fuller God in His Word as you commune with Him in the Holy Spirit. We must love God as He is. Thirdly, we must love God sincerely. Look at verse 7 with me as as we look at the third commandment. God says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now very often we think of this as, as being a commandment against swearing or using God's name as a curse. But there's far more to it than that. When I mentioned a husband damaging his wife's name, This becomes an issue of reputation. So you can imagine uh, a serial adulterer drags his wife's name through the mud. They have the same name. They share the same family name. And yet his conduct brings her down. It's actually more than that when we begin to think about how we might take the name of the Lord in vain. The reality is Christians bear the name of Christ in everything they do. We not only represent represent Jesus as His church, we also act in His name. That's why we end our prayers in Jesus' name. We ask God to do things in the name of Christ. If we pray to serve ourselves and not the King, we are taking the name of the Lord in vain and we are using it to pray for ourselves. That's why James says, you ask and don't receive because you ask amiss. And then he calls the church, he said, you adulteresses. Because you are asking God for things, not to advance His kingdom, not for His glory, but for your own consumption. You want His good gifts, not Him. And that is a spiritual adultery. And when you end that kind of prayer in Jesus' name, you are taking the name of God in vain. Prayer is an awesome responsibility. We need to grow in praying good and rich and biblical prayers and recognize that if we pray for things with wrong or insincere motives, the Word of God calls us adulteresses and we have taken Jesus' name in vain. I like to illustrate it this way. that The church, in order to make it possible to conveniently purchase things and to leave a good track record, 
has issued a credit card to me and the, the office also has a church credit card. That church credit card is to be used for the expenses of the church exclusively. If I take the church credit card and I pay for a vacation in Hawaii for my family, I will come back and I should be fired for that. That is taking the name of the church and using it for a non-church purpose. And God says you must never take His name and not serve Him with it. Before I go to the next point, I've been thinking a lot about Revelation because of a book that I've been reading. And as Jesus assesses the churches throughout the ancient world, He assesses the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. He looks at the church of Ephesus, and and Ephesus has doctrine right, and they have ministry right. They, They know what is true, they dismiss what is not true, and they are also highly motivated to serve the Lord in good programs. And yet Jesus says, you have left your first love, and unless you return to it, I will remove your lampstand. I imagine that at the church of Ephesus, if they had had a building, they would have had a plaque as soon as you walked in the foyer, founded by the Apostle Paul. They would have been very proud of their legacy as one of the first churches to ever be founded and one of the few churches to be founded by the Apostle Paul that had a lasting legacy. And Jesus said, I don't care about your legacy. If you don't love me, you're not representing me, and I will remove you from the world. And historically, he did remove them from the world. The church in Ephesus died, even though they were faithful in doctrine and even though they were faithful in ministry. And I believe that it is very important that we as a church never confuse our legacy with God's. We must never cloak our will and our plans and our program in a kind of Christian language that says, this is what God wants us to do without having hearts that earnestly seek Him in prayer, that are devoted to His Word, that are devoted to obeying Him. Let me ask, and this is a difficult question, as a church, as First Baptist Church of Holly, do we confuse our legacy with the Lord's name? Because the Lord is very jealous for His name. He makes that very clear. The Lord does not care about churches that no longer faithfully proclaim the Gospel with a fervent love that says they are resting and believing in it. I believe that we need to urgently pray that Jesus leads our church by His Spirit as we seek Him in His Word, that we are alive and in love with Him. We need to constantly examine ourselves as believers, and our church needs to constantly examine itself to make sure that we do not take the name of the Lord in vain as we represent Him in ministry and in missions and in our services. Finally this morning, we are to love God in our work and in our worship. And this is verses 8-11. through Read with me. Scripture says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Before I talk about resting and remembering the Sabbath day, let me say a word about work. Some of us fail to set aside time to rest to the Lord and worship, but others fail to work as they should. And I want to mention, uh, some, some retirees, I think, become more busy after they retire. Some retirees feel that they are, are at least tempted to laziness. They've put in their time, now they can coast. But let me remind you that God does not give you a permanent vacation in retirement. He has a lot of things for seniors in particular to do within the church. And Paul addresses older men and older women in the roles that they are to play within the church. And I believe that should be understood as your God-given work. Whether it's in prayer, for some of you who really can't leave, Paul describes widows who are devoted to prayer. Man, we need some people who are faithful in prayer. Who are interceding for all of the people within the church. I want to encourage you if you're retired to recognize the rhythm of six days of work and a day of rest devoted to worship still applies to you. Let me remind you that this is given for our good. We are to follow the calling that God gives us as believers, and the gifting that we receive by the Holy Spirit until He calls us home. We can serve each other. And as I thought about how this relates to a husband and wife, the the joke that is too often true is that every young couple with kids who goes on a date ends up grocery shopping. You drop the kids off and you go to Walmart. If that's the only quality time you have together, you're doing it wrong. Lauren will not feel my love for her as we pick out apples and lettuce. The reality is, we need some time where we gaze into each other's eyes and remember who we are and why we love each other. And I believe that many people believe, well, I can worship God with a fishing pole. Or I can worship God with my hobbies. Or, or with certain crafts. You know, we enjoy spending time together making crafts. And that's good and that's true and that's real. But if that's the only way you worship God, you are in effect dragging Him along on a date to an activity that yes, He may be with you. And yes, you may worship Him in thankfulness for that. But if you are never worshiping God alone, you're kind of being a jerk. It would be true for me it would be true for any of us who said, oh, of course, I I love the Lord. I I spend time with God in my duck blind all the time. Well, no, God instructs you to worship Him in a particular way that sets aside time from all the other activities and all the other things that you do that focuses on Him in His Word and in prayer and in Christian fellowship. Yes, you can worship God while fishing. Yes, you can worship God with whatever your hobby is. But the problem with worshiping God while you're fishing is that God is not your focus. The fish is. You may fellowship with Him, but you're fellowshipping while you do something else. And that's not wrong by itself, but don't confuse it with setting aside time to worship God Himself. If you are not setting aside time to be with God, focusing on God in His Word and prayer, in fellowship with other Christians, you're just dragging God along in all your hobbies. Here in the text, it says we are to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It is a day kept to the Lord. The Lord is the object of our attention and our worship. 
Keeping the Sabbath is an act of worship to God. Leviticus 23.3 describes it in this way. It is a sacred assembly wherever you live. And Jesus observed it by going to the synagogue and reading and teaching and preaching from the Scriptures. I believe that habit holds today that the church is intended to gather for teaching and worship. That's why Paul expects the Corinthian church. He says, when you gather on the first day of the week, that's when they were to give. And I believe the most obvious and best way for us to keep Sabbath is through faithful church attendance and deliberate fellowship with family and other Christians. And I believe that we should work very hard to avoid working on the Sabbath. And I want to say this too. We do have freedom. God will judge me if I impose a law on the church that God has not given. And I want to be very careful to avoid that. But the Scripture does say very clearly to Christians, do not forsake your weekly gatherings. And when Paul talks about giving to the church, he says on the first day of the week, when you gather together, the assumption is the church is faithfully gathering together. It's a day for fellowship with other believers focused on God. You focus on Him in your singing. You focus on Him in your giving. You focus on Him by trying to understand the Scriptures and what they say to you. And I want to I encourage you, don't, don't miss this. This is a good gift. It is in our worship that we find restoration and healing. When Jesus says He is the Lord of the Sabbath, He makes it very clear that the things that He does are not breaking the Sabbath. When the, when the Pharisees accuse Him, He says, you would not have condemned the innocent. In other words, He's saying, what we are doing and you are condemning is not a violation of the Sabbath. You are wrong and have understood the Scriptures wrong. And when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, He is showing that the Sabbath is given for man, not man for the Sabbath. That it is okay to do what is healthy and right together so that we build each other up. And the greatest way we can do that for each other is by encouraging each other to faithfulness to Christ, praying for one another. And so let me ask you, are you finding your, your healing in fellowship with Jesus Christ? Are you resting in Jesus? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, I confess, I believe I've, I've broken all four of these. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize the great depth of your love and the forgiveness that we have in Christ. But teach us to walk in obedience, Lord. May we experience the blessings of obedience. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.